I'm sorry, but the person you called has a voice mailbox that has not been set up Is yet. Is that Jonathan? <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Let me message him. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash freelancer show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 168 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. Eric Davis. Hey. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Sonny Bunnell. Did I say that right? You said it right. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm the co-founder and creative director of Motto, and uh, Motto is a comprehensive branding agency, and we work with visionary leaders and organizations to build inspiring and magnetic brands. Awesome. So uh, you sent us like 10 zillion articles to read. And I'll <laughs> I admit, think there was like four. <laughs> there were... 10 zillion sounds good though. <laughs> yeah, there, there were seven links. Yeah. So uh, I went and read them and uh, I, I just want to dig into this because it's, it's so interesting. Sure. I think the first thing that I read that really kind of connected for me was was having an archetype for your business. Do you want to kind of explain the principles behind that and then give us some ideas? Sure. Well, archetypes are interesting because they've, you know, been around for a very long period of time. We've seen archetypes throughout history, you know, even dating back to the beginning of time, you know, the famous story of Adam and Eve and Eve taking the first bite of the apple, which was considered an act of rebellion um, against God. And then, of course, we have all sorts of different characters that have emerged. I mean, it would take a whole show to go through all of them, probably several shows, but you know, you can think of people like Marilyn Monroe and JFK and Martin Luther King and all these individuals who have made these sort of impact in terms of their personality and who they are. And so archetypes essentially have existed for a very long period of time. The unique thing is that not until maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, we started to make the connection about how they apply to branding and companies. And so what archetyping sort of is, is that most companies struggle with defining and articulating meaning. So they, they struggle with defining the meaning of their brand. And so we've learned over the last couple of years that really meaning is probably one of the most difficult things that companies are dealing with, especially when they reach out to us. They say things like, you know, we feel like this is our, our brand should feel like this, or, you know, we feel like our brand needs more pop or it needs to be more fresh. And what's really happening is they're struggling to give language to what those things actually mean. Um, so they're kind of searching for the language to, to put around it. And so archetypes kind of give you the language to be able to do that. So we have these sort of 12 archetype characteristics like, you know, are you a hero? Are you, you know, an explorer? Are you a rebel? Are you a lover? And, of, you know, of course, there's a few more. But, you know, when you start to identify what those things are and you begin to understand what they mean. You know, when we think of a rebel, we think of someone who is, uh, you know, kind of a rule breaker or a catalyst for change. And so when you start to adopt that language within your organization, it starts to give you a little bit of a, a picture or an essence that you begin to build language around. And so archetyping is really effective for defining what that meaning is. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that resonated with me was just that this is something that I've struggled with with my own freelancing business. So basically, I'll put it this way, but uh, people ask me what my business is about, and I'm like, solving problems with Ruby on Rails and you know and it's <laughs> sure. like okay but what are you about and I'm like um, about solving problems with Ruby on Rails and yeah I mean there's nothing to grab somebody there there's nothing right. to to latch on to and so yeah if you see something relatable like that some you know I like the term archetype but you see that rebel or that teacher explorer or lover or whatever you know, it's like oh okay I immediately identify with those aspects of my own personality Sure. And, you know, you have to think about it like this. You know, a lot of people, when they try to think of things like they want to be dangerous or edgy or, you know, they start using language like that um, or they try to show you photos or they try to search for the language to define what that is. But if you say I'm an outlaw or, you know, I rebel against the rules or I challenge the status quo, well, then all of a sudden you begin to start painting these mental pictures. And that's essentially archetyping, you know, again, you have to think about all the times that we've seen these stories like Cinderella and Nike. You know, Nike's a great hero brand. You think of like Superman, you know, you think of all these kind of characters that have appeared throughout time. You know, archetyping starts to paint a picture for what those individuals are and what, what characteristics that they embody. And so the same kind of thinking can essentially be applied to your brand and your company. I can see how this would be super important for like a company that had, you know, a, a non solo company because you've got to kind of coalesce the personality into a voice. Mm -hmm. Is it as important for like a solo freelancer or a solo consultant, do you think? Or is it kind of almost redundant? Well, it's a great question. I think that, yes, it's very important because. In today's marketplace and in today's market, I think that we're all, in essence, becoming personal brands, you know, and the unique thing is, is yes, your company is one entity, um, but you as an individual can have your own archetype and it doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't necessarily need to align with what your company is, although we see a lot of that. Um, in a lot of the companies that we work with, specifically if there's a leader or a CEO who started the business who's really closely tied to it. We often see there's a big alignment between the personal archetype of that person and then also the archetype of the company. But I think that even as a solopreneur or an entrepreneur, you really do need to know what kind of archetype that you embody. And as humans, we're very complex individuals. So it's not like we're just one thing, but there's always one thing that's sort of more dominant in us than other things. So, you know, of course, I'm made up of a couple of different archetypes. I have different qualities but there's one that for me personally kind of is the dominating quality for me or the the dominating archetype characteristic for me personally. It's not the same as what it is for Motto, which is kind of interesting. Um, but Ash and I know that Ash is a different type of archetype than I am. And Motto is its own archetype. But we are, you know, fully committed to exploring that archetype and have been, you know, since the beginning of, of Motto. I think for uh, solopreneurs, you just have to know who you are. And know what that archetype is so that you can then begin communicating it, whether it's in your business or, you know, whether you're a consultant or whatever that is, knowing that archetype is going to help you just paint a clear picture for not only those that you work with, but for those that, you know, seek you out. 
So if you're made up of, you know, it's just a solopreneur and you're made up of a number of different archetypes, you could perhaps emphasize one that is going to be the most likely to be attractive to your target audience, for example. Sure. I mean, there's a great example that I use a a good bit. It's a a client of ours called Johnny Cupcakes. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but I know Johnny personally, and I also have worked, you know, in his company and for his company. And so what's interesting about him is that his personal archetype is through and through a direct extension of the company that he built, Johnny Cupcakes, and also him as a, he's now bridged out into doing a lecture series, which is what we worked on with him. And, you know, he's through and through a jester. And what's very interesting about him, and I use him a lot, is because he embodies like all of the characteristics, if you know him as a person, all of the characteristics of a jester. And then if you know his company, you also can sense um, that he's very jester-like and, you know, it, kind of always the jokester and the prankster. And, and that's what Johnny Cupcakes is, is all about. It's about making people happy. And he does that through expressing himself in, in his brand in a lot of different ways that we don't always see that clear of a picture for a lot of companies, but he's a true embodiment of an archetype being just authentic all the way through. Interesting. But you, so you mm-hmm. can imagine someone who picked that archetype to base their business on maybe wouldn't be super attractive to like people who were uh, really adverse to risk or some kind of bank, you know, credit union type of clients. If he was trying yeah, to, so no, that definitely. It seems like there might be some considerations to it. It sounds like very sort of soul searching exercise. Oh, it definitely is. And I think what's kind of interesting too, is that, you know, financial institutions do tend to be, you know, the ruler archetype. Uh, We see a good bit of that, but then what's kind of cool is sometimes you see what you don't expect. You can see a company that you wouldn't anticipate being a different archetype. And they actually use that to their advantage to kind of carve out a unique space. A great, probably a great example of that would be like Geico. Um, when you think of car insurance and you think of, you know, boat insurance and things like that, you, you don't exactly get the warm and fuzzies. But then when you think of uh, how they've implemented the gecko and how they've used this sense of humor, it starts to make you, you know, think about, wow, you know, they, they've been able to use something and carve out a niche and in a space that is traditionally what I would say is kind of benign and boring. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm struggling to think of the name. I think Eric knows it, but there's a uh, company that handles accounting services for creative types. Mm-hmm. And it just the whole thing is so refreshingly non stodgy. Struggling to think of the name. I'm sure someone will Is come it up less with accounting it. or zero? It might be less. It could be. No, I don't think it was zero. It might have been less accounting than I'm thinking. Those of, guys just, are goofballs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it, they, they're doing the same thing where they kind of like, toy with your expectations because of the target market that they're going after. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we see a good bit of that too. Actually, we encourage it. Do we just get so many people that reach out to us and they're like, you know, we want to be the next Apple and we want to do what they did. And we try really hard to be very clear about that. You know, you're not going to be the next Apple. You're going to be the next to you. And, and what does that look like for your organization? And how do you make something meaningful for yourself? How do you leave your own imprint? And that's always these exercises that we work through specifically with archetyping are probably the most challenging things that we do for clients. And I would also say that we do a lot of visioning with clients. That is also a real struggle for them. A lot of companies come to us and they just don't know uh, what future they're creating for their organization or for the people that they've brought on. And that's always a challenge for us, too, because we can't hand someone a vision. We can certainly 
kind of fuel it and push it and, and kind of, you know, facilitate it to some degree, but we can't give a company their vision. We have to just help uh, get them to a point where they can articulate it and we can help them articulate it in a way that makes sense and matters and, and so forth. But yeah, I mean, we, we definitely see this a good bit. We try to push people to work through these exercises in a way that does reveal their true self so that they can begin to build a foundation for something. Otherwise, it's a lot of random decisions and a lot of decisions made without a lot of thinking behind it. And so we try to help companies avoid that as much as possible. So let's say that I've got a small dev shop or maybe it's just me. How do I start to identify the archetype that I should be using? Sure. So, you know, there's 12 primary archetypes in all, and they each have you know, their own set of stories and values and meanings. The question that we always try to start with is what's the role that you want to play in the world? You know, if you could play a role, what would that role be? And, you know, we've really kind of laboriously perfected an exercise that that we work through with clients that, you know, we try to work through what their archetype is. And I think the first step is obviously education. A lot of people don't know that this exercise even exists or why it matters. And I think to communicate, well, how do you use it? Why is it important? And to really paint the picture for that, you know, this is a complex conversation that's existed for hundreds of years that has recently been applied to branding. And so to start there and sort of begin to work through some questions about, you know, who are we? What matters to us? Uh, what do we feel like we identify with when we go through each of the archetypes? Is there things that are jumping out that you feel embody some qualities or characteristics that you're either living out now or that you feel like you want to strive towards? And then that sort of begins to narrow down uh, where you sort of fit in that scale. But again, you know, archetyping is a fundamental critical element to brand building, but it's not the only thing that we do. You know, archetyping kind of comes down a little bit later in the line. You know, we usually start with vision, values, purpose, um, those are kind of the the keystones for what we begin with. And then once we have those very clear, a lot of times the archetype is the one thing that sort of brings it all together and starts to build language around it, if that makes sense. So again, it's it's a lot of questions that you have to ask. And a lot of people we see can't do it on their own um, because then they end up picking two or three archetypes or they don't know which one really resonates. And sometimes they think they're one archetype that they're really not. And so by facilitating that or working with somebody who's at least done it for a, a long time and helped a lot of companies, then you begin to use them to kind of help you see a little bit more clearly. Yeah, this kind of stuff's almost impossible to do yourself. Oh, absolutely. It, it can be very difficult. I mean, even when we let clients start the exercises on their own, they always typically come back with two or three and they're like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, you know, and only through further probing and kind of pushing do we really start to hone in and laser in on one. But what's amazing is once they know that, it is revolutionary and transformational how clear they become in knowing how to start talking about their company and their brand. It's just, I've seen it time and time again, and it never ceases to amaze me. We've been doing this for like 10 years. And it's amazing, you know, the clarity that these companies get. And the reason that we practiced archetyping is because, you know, Ashley and I lost our way early on in our own career. And it was sort of that one thing that brought us back to who we are and, and was able to kind of shape and transform our own company and the path that we were on. And so it worked so well for us that we were like, we wanted to share it. 
once you have that clarity, so you you know you said that it's amazing, it's revolution. You know, I can totally imagine that. But what's the actual business outcome of that? So could you kind of not quantify it necessarily, but uh, you know, it sounds like a it actually sounds like a pretty difficult, maybe even a little bit of a painful exercise that doesn't <laughs> happen overnight. Right. Right. And why? myself through that like what is the benefit to me what is the problem that i'm having that makes me know that i need this as the solution and then what can i expect to gain from it after i've got the clarity i think that's a fascinating question i think that without a point of view you do not stand for anything and what we believe is that you really should stand for something you know in order to not only build your company but where are you building your company what does the future for your company look like and i think from a financial standpoint there's proven results and documentation. Uh, there's a lot of studies out there about the quality, not necessarily of just archetyping. I think, you know, branding as a conversation is much bigger than just looking at archetyping as the only factor. You know, there's a lot of factors that play into the success of a company over the long term. I think what you have to look at is why these types of things are important, specifically archetyping or even visioning or values is that as you begin to grow, it sets the foundation for the integrity of your brand. And as you begin to bring people on, whether that's employees, as you start to build a culture, as you start to evolve and grow, knowing who you are is really important because there will undoubtedly be times where that comes into question, whether it's you're in the middle of, you know, there's competitors that come up behind you, there's new trends, there's things that make a lot of companies second guess themselves. And we have seen this time and time again. Many companies get into situations where they see things going on around them and they start to kind of make very fast and unprudent decisions. And by knowing who you are, by knowing who your archetype is, by sort of practicing that and never wavering on it, I think that you really truly can stand the test of time. And I think it overall, it's clearer for your team, it's clear for you, it's clear for your customers, and it's clear for the products and the services that you offer. I mean, ultimately, by being very firm and understanding who you are in the world, I think that you're able to provide a clear pathway to meaning, which is what all companies and brands need to do. Yes, it sounds like uh, you can make smarter decisions faster if you know what opportunities are actually appropriate for you to pursue and, you know, which opportunities are really not appropriate for you to, to pursue. Well, yeah, you ask yourself things like, is this us or is this not us? And, you know, some people don't know the answer to that. Most companies don't know the answer to that. And I only know this by working with hundreds of companies and hundreds of entrepreneurs that they struggle with this. It's the one thing that we get the phone rings the most for is help me define the meaning of my company. Help me understand where I'm trying to take this thing. And, you know, but for people who know those things, right, because we do have a lot of leaders and organizations who come to us who, who are very clear about their vision. But, you know, again, I think that it's sort of you have to ask the question, is this on brand? Is this not on brand? And when you don't kind of know some of these things, which I call the foundational elements to brand building, if you don't know what those things are, you're definitely going to struggle as you go through the process of building out your company, whether you stick with one person or five people or a hundred people or more than that, you will eventually ask those questions. And I think it's worth it to know the answer to those questions. 
Well, yeah, especially, I, I totally agree with the, the being able to articulate your vision, especially internally. If you've got a, the more employees you have, the more important it is to have a kind of commander's intent type of, this is what we stand for. This is how we do it. But it seems like I'm assuming, but I don't want to assume that this is going to have a powerful effect, not just internally on, you know, making decisions and keeping everybody aligned internally, but also when you stand for something, it makes it easier to attract your ideal customers, I would think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're, you know, your audience knows now and they're just more in tune. And I think companies have to reach their hand a little bit higher in order to stand out and to be recognizable. A lot of companies out there are forgettable. And I think that what can you do to get attention? You know, how do you, how do you create a language around yourself? How do you create a point of view? How do you stand for something so that other people one on that train. And I think it's the most challenging thing for people in business today. There's hundreds of, I mean, even for us, there's hundreds and hundreds of great, amazing designers. Why us? Why, why pick us? Why choose motto over somebody else? We have to work on that on a day-to-day basis to carve out a unique point of view for ourselves, where traditionally a lot of agencies almost didn't have a voice because they were so trying to appeal to an audience, you know, meaning like you're so busy building other people's brands that you don't really build your own. And it took us a long time to kind of figure out that, hey, like we are in fact our own company and our own brand and we have our own point of view. And and that sort of, uh, you know, that same thinking applies to anything that you're doing. Um, whether you have a book, whether you have a podcast, whether you have a, a product or a service, whatever those things are, you, you have to be able to communicate who you are or otherwise people won't understand you. Yeah, you're just mush. You're just mush. <laughs> it's a great way to put it. Technical term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're kind of like clay, you know, you can be modeled. And I think that's the scary part is that if you don't model yourself, someone else will. And I just believe in kind of taking control of that. I, I think you should do everything with intent. So I guess the, the next thing is, so I have my archetype and I'll just pick one off the list. Let's say Explorer. Mm-hmm. What, what do you do next? I mean, you know, I, I'm sure you resonate with that somehow, but how does that inform like the design on your website or the messaging in your blog posts or the way that you approach finding customers or anything else? Yeah. Well, you have to think about at the heart of what it, the definition of an explorer is. So when you think of an explorer, you think of someone or something that moves past the known to explore new uncharted territories. You think when one crowd, when crowds go one way, the explorers tend to go a different path. You know, they sort of embrace the journey rather than the destination. And so there's a lot of brands that embody those qualities. Once you know what, let's just say that you're an explorer. Then the decision starts to happen where you start to intentionally craft language and messages and put the language around what the explorer sounds like, looks like, feels like. There's great brands that we all know and love that are great examples of that. For example, North Face, uh, Subaru, Patagonia is a great example of an explorer. You can see the consistency in their language and the imagery, you know, there's always somebody sort of kind of pioneering the unknown. You know, we have a, a, a client actually called Monk Pack that we've been working with over the last um, year or so, and they make food on the go that goes in these little pouches. And their audience is people who love adventure, love the outdoors. They're always seeking the next horizon, the next mountain to climb. 
And we have just basically infused every aspect of the explore into their brand. And it's just paying off. I mean, they, they just got picked up by Costco. They're in Whole Foods. These guys, like when you follow them on Instagram, they've got people all over the world taking photos in these, mo- in these beautiful, amazing places with this little pouch of food in their backpack. And it's just amazing how we set out with the intention to send that message to the world and the world is receiving it. And, you know, I think, again, it just comes down to what is the intent? If you know what what the Explorer sounds like, again, the language is often very pioneering. There's a spirit about it. There's always the sense of adventure. When you think about that, the images, the language that you use, the, the videos, whatever, whatever it is, the package design, however, you kind of infuse that feeling of the Explorer into it. Another great example would be somebody like Anthony Bourdain. I mean, we all know who Anthony Bourdain is for the most part. He's on CNN. He's done Parts Unknown. He's done No Reservations. I mean, he is the ultimate explorer, you know, experiencing the world on a plate through food. It's just fascinating to me. And he, he probably doesn't, maybe he realizes it, maybe he doesn't, but he knows deep down. I mean, I've read a lot of his books that you know, he is always about experiencing life, you know, being on the journey and, and even in his language and his words and his books. Um, we actually and I just actually heard him talk here in Dallas at the at the Majestic and just seeing him, you know, for the first time on stage, uh, he just oozed the essence of, of an explorer. I mean, every, life is an adventure for him. And so I think it's about being true to that and bringing it to life through your company and through your brand. So I'm also curious, which archetype have have you chosen for motto and how have you implemented that in your business? Well, you know, motto is true and true, an explorer archetype. Early on, we thought we were kind of rebellious and, and I think at one point we were, but we realized that, you know, a few years into business that that wasn't, we weren't exactly being incredibly authentic to that. And so for us, the explorer has always resonated simply because we believe that branding is a process of self-discovery. And we take our clients on a journey to pioneer, you know, their spirit. And, you know, we do that internally as a company. And we're always looking for ways to uncover and sort of discover new and exciting things and opportunities and and so forth. And so it's always been authentically an explorer. Um, And we just help our clients do the same. Now, you mentioned that uh, you felt like rebels at the beginning a little bit. Mm -hmm. Can you blend them at all? Does that just not work or? Well, I mean, you know, just like anything, right? I think I mentioned this early on that humans are really very complex. And I think organizations are obviously very complex. You know, there's always going to be some characteristics that shine. But I think ultimately you can't really be both. I think you really do have to sort of pick one that you can follow and, and shoot the arrow for so that you always hit the target. I do think that to some degree, you know, there will always be a little bit of rebel in us just because Ashley and I have that sense about us personally. When we first started Motto, that was something that was a personal thing for us. You know, we were in a small town. We wanted to defy what we were being told. A lot of people told us that we would fail. Uh, a lot of people told us like, oh, you know, two young girls, like, you know, give me a break. What do you think you're going to build here? And that really fueled us. And I feel like that early on, those challenges were definitely what kind of pushed us forward. But I also think that it wasn't necessarily just the rebel that was weighing 
heavily in our company. I think it was just us. You know, we personally were, were rebellious to some degree, but I think motto was always probably at the heart and explore. And, and it wasn't until maybe a year or two into our business that we really truly hooked into that and realized that that was the most authentic voice for us. I think all of this stuff is super important. Like the self-awareness, even for a single person shop is so important to know. It just helps you have conviction in your decisions about a million things. You have to make mm-hmm. a million decisions as uh, somebody who's running their own shop, freelancer, solo consultant, whatever. And opportunities will come up. You'll get referrals to jobs that maybe you don't want and maybe cash flow is not as great as it could be. So you're tempted to take it. And mm. there's just a million decisions to make. So I, I 100% know that knowing sort of who you are and what you stand for is super important. But I want to also add that I think it's also important to know who you serve, which mm-hmm. I feels like a different thing. It feels like what you're talking about is very much introspective, even though that it allows you to then communicate a sort of unified message to the world. It Mm -hmm. doesn't, I mean, nothing you've said really speaks that much to who your audience is. I mean, in general, it does. In general, you're saying that if you stand for something, you're not going to appeal to everyone because Mm -hmm. not everyone's going to appeal to it. But can you talk a little bit about implementing once the brand is established? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, what about the target market? What about, you know, how do you then act on that to, and specific, if you have any examples of smaller companies, that would be the best because I think that's more in tune with the audience. Sure. Where, I mean, maybe, I don't know, but maybe Johnny Cupcake sounds like a solo person or a small company. How did he then capitalize on all this hard work you did to define the target audience? Like, who who is going to resonate best with my jester? Uh, archetype and how am I going to reach those people and what does it mean when they resonate with me and what happens when people who are maybe not the kind of people I want to work with uh, are attracted to me for some other reason like mm-hmm. so, oh, there's, I know that's a million questions but yeah. <laughs> I was like man that's a, it's well, a squishy just, it's a squishy area so I'm that's just okay. trying to like, give you no, some no. rope yeah yeah so Johnny's a great example because he he is not just a small company you know he was voted number one entrepreneur. He's flown all over the world. He's spoken for Apple. I mean, he, he's just, this guy's everywhere. Um, he's got uh, three different locations, one in LA, one in Boston, one in Martha's Vineyard. He just had a shop in, in London. What's very interesting about Johnny, and just so you know, just to be clear, like we didn't build the Johnny Cupcakes brand. Um, we worked with him after, you know, that, that brand had been long established. We worked with him on once he started to go out into the world and actually speak. He wanted to talk and share his story about him building the Johnny Cupcakes brand from, you know, the back of his car. I mean, essentially he is the true rags to riches story where this guy was selling t-shirts out of the trunk of his Camry and has essentially built, you know, this business from the ground up. And he wanted to share that with, with other organizations. So when we were brought on, we were brought on to work with him to bring the lecture series to life, which we designed the brand for that and the website for that. He wanted it to be kind of inextricably linked to the Johnny Cupcakes brand because he in of himself, even though his real name is Johnny Earl, he's Johnny Cupcakes. You know, everybody knows him as Johnny Cupcakes. So he's a great example of someone who went after a very specific kind of individual and a very specific kind of audience that I think, you know, he doesn't appeal to everyone. Kids wait out in front of his stores for like overnight. I mean, they people like line up around the block to get these limited edition t-shirts. I mean, show me any other t-shirt company where that's happening. He's got kids that are tattooing 
his logo on their neck and their arms and their body. I mean, he has just created this cult-like loyalty that is astonishing to me that he's been able to do that. I mean, in so many ways, he's he's this kind of unique combination of all the things that you want companies to be able to do. He's like the Apple of the t-shirt world. You know, he's certainly not grown to that size yet. He's not been in business very, very long, certainly not like Apple, but he's interesting in that he's been able to create a cult of people that just truly are loyalists to, they'll follow him wherever he goes. So when we talk about knowing your archetype and being able to identify in the world with who you serve, by knowing that you're going to attract the people that also identify with those things. You know, you're not going to attract anyone and everyone who doesn't necessarily, you know, identify with that. And I think that's okay. I think that's what it should be. I, I, you know, for example, when people come to us, you know, they seek us out because of what we're putting out into the world. We're saying, Hey, we can do these things. You know, we'll take you through this process. It's not the easiest process. We tell people like, listen, if you're looking for this, this, and this, we are not the right fit. And it's hard to turn people away because I've had people come to me with a check for $150,000 wanting to work with us. And I know for a fact that we cannot help them. They're not going to be a right fit for us for one reason or another. That is glaringly obvious. And so to turn that down seems like asinine, right? It sounds like crazy. Like who would do that? But why try to kind of force chemistry or force things that you know you're not going to be able to make magic or you're not going to be able to make magical things. And so I think it's no different in, in w- what company that you're building. You know, you you have to be able to identify, again, I think who you are trying to serve, what are their characteristics, what do they believe in, what do they love, what do they enjoy, and you just speak to them. You know, you preach to them because they're the only ones that's going to hear the sermon. That's the only sermon that they're going to listen to is probably yours if they're they're in line with your thinking. And I think Uh, A lot of companies try to be everything to all things. And I just don't think it's strategic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. You need to know who you serve, um, but it's even more important to know who you are so that you know who to serve. Yeah, it's a little chicken and egg for me. I don't think one is, I think sort of inextricably linked in a way. Yeah, they are. I I mean, we're we're certainly 100% in agreement that trying to be all things to all people is a recipe for disaster. Mm Mm-hmm. What if I've been in business for two years or five years or 10 years, and I kind of have this track record of being all over the place with my brand? Is it too late? And are there things that I can do specifically to make a more cohesive message? I never think it's too late. You know, I've worked with companies that have been in business for 60 years who have made a powerful transformation. So I, I don't believe it's ever too late to start. Sure, there's things to unravel. You know, there, there's things that there's a lot of history, especially in some of these brands. There's been a lot that has occurred within them, but I don't think it's too late to become the thing that, you know, feels most like you, you know, and, and what we've learned is that a lot of these companies that didn't have this language and then they do, it's pretty remarkable how clear they become and how more they feel like themselves, you know, and I think it changes their decision-making. I think it changes the feeling, the, I I think it changes the morale of the company when they sort of know where they're going. And I've seen companies who have been in business for two years and usually there's like common symptoms. I mean, we see this a, a good bit. There's usually something that is glaring that they may be overlooking or they know that's kind of there, but they're like, well, we're, we're making money. So everything seems to be okay. But they know in the back of their minds that something is more difficult than it should be. And a lot of it is often related to 
strategy, um, messaging, the language. Sometimes the design is very poor. It doesn't reflect the company in and of itself. Um, we worked with a company a couple of years ago. It's been about two years, I think, that by all accounts and purposes, successful. Had probably one of the most amazing cultures I've ever been in. The company itself was doing well. You know, they weren't hurting financially by any means. Again, the culture was very intact, a very supportive group of, of folks. They loved working where, there. A lot of the people had been there for many, many years, wouldn't consider going anywhere else. And what was sort of interesting about them was that the thing that they, they came to us and said is, he said, you know, we're making money. We have a great team. We love our clients. But we feel like we don't really know why we're in business. We don't really know if we have a purpose. And that was very revealing to me because they said, you know, we're doing well, but like our language, you know, the things that we're saying on our website, our website feels this way. And, you know, again, kind of searching for the language to put around why things felt off, but they couldn't quite articulate what was off. And, you know, we worked through a lot of these exercises with them. And over the last year, you know, they've doubled in revenue. Um, they've added to their team. They built a manifesto within the company, the leadership team. It feels they, they're like, we just feel so much more clear about our purpose. We know who we are now. We know what we stand for. We know what we do, what we'll do and what we don't do. And that in and of itself was enough to kind of get them like into the next phase of their business, into the next evolution of their growth. And I think that these things will be with them for a very long time, despite how big they grow or how far they, how far they go as a company and how many pe people that they have. I truly, truly think that the, that the heart and soul of the company, the home of the company is very well seated now. It's almost like, I mean, it's a very first world problem in a way. It's like, oh, we're making money and everything's fine on the surface, but we've got this business malaise. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like, it's this thing that's itching at us. Yeah. Um, people that are scrambling to get the next gig probably are not going to notice that they have that kind of an issue, but it, your they point will. is, they, but exactly. They mm -hmm. will, because mm -hmm. once you get to that, it sounds like the perfect way to break through that first ceiling. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it, it like I said, it's, it's like lifting a veil for a lot of these companies that, that we've worked with, you know, I mean, what's so funny is that we had a call a couple of weeks ago from, I can't say who they are because I signed an NDA, <laughs> but this company is, is just, you guys know who they are. I mean, we drive by them every day on the road, huge, huge, huge. We've all grown up with them. They're just on every corner. And this company called and said, we've been in business since the late sixties and we are having trouble articulating our purpose. And I almost dropped the phone because I'm like, you know, you know, I would think that, you know, after all this time, I would, I would hear these things again and again and again, and they would not surprise me. But I'm like thinking, you know, I just, I sat there almost with like a, I didn't even know what to say because I was so almost stunned that this company that I have known and grown up with and have eaten at many, many times was struggling with that. And it, it was just amazing to me because I'm like, it doesn't matter what size you are. You can be the, one of the biggest corporate giants in the world and you can still be, you know, struggling with where do we go from here? You know, how do we now begin to put language around? And what was interesting is they had worked with another agency who had given them language that I'll be quite frank. I don't even know what the hell that means. Like some of it was just so bizarre. <laughs> the language was so abstract 
I just yeah. had no idea what they were actually trying to say. Like we exist to serve those that serve the yeah. public that, and I was like, and we're delightful. And I, I was like, I didn't even know what they were getting at. And I was like, no wonder, you know, it's like if, if these, and th- this is like a well-known agency, you know, and I'm thinking, God, if these guys are struggling with it, you know, then it's kind of like a problem, you know, it's been a problem for a long time. And so, yeah, I mean, it's amazing to me that this, this just goes on all the time in, in these people's businesses, because a lot of times the, the founder of the company or the leader of the company, when they start the business, there's a very intimate relationship that happens. And I think it's very interesting as the company begins to scale, how does that stay intact? How does that love for something that is usually born from an idea from someone, how does that love stay intact? And it's a question that, you know, I've been trying to answer for a long time, you know, in my own business, because I, we work with it all the time. In a lot of these companies, there's multiple CEOs, there's people who have taken over the business, whatever. And sometimes it's not loved the way that it originally was loved and you can feel it and the people can feel it. They just don't have the language for it. And we try to give them the language that they need in order to be able to articulate these things. So yeah, it's interesting for sure. You can see where those, I would refer to them as soggy positioning statements or soggy mission statements come from. They're just like utterly meaningless word majory that maybe means something to the committee of people that came up with them. But uh, really, it seems like they're architected to tick off exactly no one, (laughs) you know, instead of actually being meaningful to a subset of the 7 billion people on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like drawing a line in the sand. And Mm -hmm. it's funny because I I counsel people with this sort of stuff, but not from a branding standpoint. It's I'm much more customer focused. Sure. And saying like, this is my ideal customer. What I do, you know, I help this ideal customer with these kinds of problems. And it's not about what I stand for or that, you know, I'm a web evangelist or that I, you know, whatever. It's not about me. It's about you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the result is exactly the same, which is that all of a sudden you get this resonance, which is interesting. And I think the thing that's in common with the two approaches is that I don't think they're necessarily one or the other. Absolutely not, in fact. But the thing that's interesting is that you're kind of drawing a line in the sand. And that means that you're not for everyone. You're not going to take every person with a check and a heartbeat. Yeah. You're not going to, I don't know, sell shoes to people you think are evil or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, how do you guys, this is a meta question about how you run Motto. It sounds like you work with potentially extremely large customers and clients but also maybe some small ones. I don't, you haven't mentioned a, you know, that you actually work with smaller clients, but we do, we do. Yeah. We work with a pretty diverse kind of group, you know, in terms of just the, the, what stage of business that they're in. Okay, perfect. So Mm -hmm. how do you deal with, how do you write stuff on your site that actually speaks to someone when you have such a wide range of people you're speaking to? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we have somewhat perfected, the way that we sort of have an intake process, if that makes sense. Like, you know, when we, when someone reaches out to us and we get a lot of inquiries, when people reach out to us, it's because of a couple of things. They've heard about us. They've been referred to us. They've heard me speak. They've heard Ashley speak, or, you know, they, they've been on our website. They've been following us. Sometimes we have people who've followed us for years who literally just reach out and they're like, I've been following you on Facebook for a really long time. And, you know, I've been waiting to kind of work with you. And I feel like we've been putting out there enough over the last several years that 
sort of what our stance is and what our point of view is. And so when someone comes to us, they're, they, I think they have a pretty good idea of why they want to work with us first and foremost. Now, once we go through the process of kind of vetting them, which is kind of exhaustive, um, I'll be honest, like we, we really do go through a process where, you know, we, we take them through a discovery set of questions. You know, it's, it's usually like two or three sets of conversations. It's, it's not like, tell me your budget, tell me this, you know, and that's it. I mean, we get that in the beginning of the, when somebody reaches out, for example, we kind of ask some basic questions, but that's really just the start of what, how does somebody fill this, that, this out? You know, are they forthright? Are they honest? Do they give me enough information that I have an, a good sense of like what's really going on? That is quite frankly, the first telling tale to us on a few things. And then from there, we kind of start to kind of vet them a a little bit more. And we really be very clear about here's who we're working with and who essentially what it's like to work with us, who you'll be working with, sort of what the process looks like. And it's not until then that we'll take that client on, you know, if we determine and we all determine that it's a great fit because it has to be a good fit for them, too. It can't just be a good fit for us. It has to be an amazing fit for both of us. Like we both feel that we're going to make something amazing together. And being very clear that it's not going to be easy, but when we get through this process, that you'll come out with something very, very powerful for you and your company in order to start putting out into the world and using. And so, you know, we get all sorts of shapes and sizes of different companies and things like that. I mean, it doesn't matter whether they're a startup or they're a scaling company. Um, a lot of the time that the issues are very similar and that it's, it's usually a, an articulation problem. It's usually a strategy problem. We just happen to be good designers, you know, but it's not, we don't lead with design. Design is not, for us, design is kind of the, it's important. It's one of the most important things, but it's not the only thing. You know, we really kind of design is like the last step for us. Um, it starts with all of these other things that we go through in order to kind of inform the design process that we go through. So they're, they're kind of twofold in that way. I'm just curious to help people envision the notion, so I think it's really important for people to get used to saying no to the wrong clients. Yeah. There's not enough of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, you told the story earlier of saying no to a gigantic check. So what kind of red flags would somebody have to raise for you to say no to them? We try to be understanding for the most part, you know, that, that we really try to work through a series of things to make sure that we're not turning down somebody for the wrong reasons, you know, that we actually know for a fact that we all kind of feel like this is not a good fit. There's usually some signs, I think, that kind of appear. And those might be things like having a call with somebody and that person, say they're the leader of the company and they, they just won't let you finish a sentence. Maybe they're, you know, they're dominating the conversation to the point that anything that we're putting on the table in those initial calls is not being picked up, um, acknowledged, listened to. Uh, maybe they think they know better than we do. I think those are real big red flags for us because if you don't come to the table knowing and acknowledging that you have an issue and you're willing to work together on those issues to allow us to do our very best work, then it's not a good fit. Because if you already know the answers, then you wouldn't need us. And that's hard. But to some degree, a lot of people, they think they've got it all figured out and they really don't. You know, you have to go through a process to really figure out what recommendations to make. I've, I've had people ask me right on the spot, tell me what I should do. And this is like our second call together. And they're upset that I'm not able to fire off an answer for what they should do within their company. And and those kinds of things are red flags to me because what it's telling me is that it's like, I need it now. 
I need the answer right this minute, you know, where sometimes like the answer doesn't appear that way. Sometimes lightning strikes and yes, you may have an epiphany, but it's rare. It's more so that you have to really understand the business. I mean, sometimes the company, you don't know the business all that well. You, you don't know the history. There's a lot to uncover. I'd say another red flag is, you know, not being forthright about things like what they're really working with. You know, do they need it yesterday? Do they not care about the process? Do they not respect the process? That's another thing. We had a consultant one time come to us and he said, can't you just send me the exercise? I, you know, like, I'll just work on them without you. And I was like, okay, no, um, that's not going to work. Uh, you know, just send me the exercise. Like, let me do it. I don't need you. You know, that, that to me just signals like some thinking that I find very difficult will wash itself out in a very unhealthy way during the relationship. You know, if they don't come to it with that kind of feeling and thinking of, hey, we're here to help each other through this process to get you, you say you have X, Y, and Z, like, let's try to solve those things as best as we can. If that person is not willing to do that, or that leadership or that team uh, is not willing to do that, to me, that signals a problem. And I would also say when a leader pioneers the process and then disappears, they kind of float in and out. I, I find that to be a little bit of a challenge, especially when it's their company. You cannot delegate your vision to the marketing team, not at the point where you're struggling. If you're struggling, there's a reason. And so you can't just be the hero for the day and hire a company and then start disappearing and you know not being involved in all of the conversations and really participating, I think, in trying to get your company back on track. If you're going to leave it to other people, which not to say that you can't have a leadership team. I think it's important that they're involved. But if you're going to be like kind of an absent leader, I find that to be very challenging as well. So there's yeah, just some, yeah. you know, some significant things that I think take place. But you had mentioned something earlier that I wanted to talk about real quick because I know we're, we're about to run out of time. But you had said something about your audience. like, And I think it's different when you're an agency or let's just say you're kind of in our business. I think you have to be a little bit more careful about who you work with and, and who you choose to partner with. I think for people building a company and having an audience, I think you do need to kind of send out what you want to attract. But I think it's up to the consumer. The audience is not dumb. They know what they want and don't want, you know? And so I think the audience kind of picks and chooses whether or not they want a product or a service, if they want to make something a part of their lives. They can make their own decisions, but it, I don't think it hurts to be able to start putting the messages out to be intentional about the things that you want people to somewhat receive or to, to receive to some degree. I think it's important to be intentional, but um, I think for us in our industry, specifically when we're working directly with clients, yeah, I think you, I think you do have to be a little bit more careful so that you can deliver the best value. Yeah. I mean, even something as simple as picking what's if you're going to, you know, advertise in mass media or you're going to go on podcasts like this, I mean, those decisions will be colored by who you're trying to attract or can, you know, you can get a lot of efficiency out of focusing on a smaller target market than yeah. if you're selling, you know, Tom's shoes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the thing with Tom's is that, you know, he knew what he was doing and why he was doing it. And he had a mission, you know, he had a, a thing, a purpose that he wanted to accomplish. And I think that the people that are receiving those things are the people that are in need of what he is giving and offering. And so it makes a lot of sense. You know, he's, he's speaking directly to the people who need him most. And I'm sure, you know, there might be people out there that don't identify with Tom's shoes at all. 
I mean, I know a couple people who don't like the style and wouldn't wear them, you know, but his, the people that the reason that he started the company and who he actually, you know, when he goes out to these countries and, and helps these individuals in need and gives them a pair of shoes, it's amazing. You know, I mean, he's intentionally, deliberately speaking to them, talking to them, resonating with them because they need him, you know, but over here, we might not need those shoes or want those shoes, you know? So it's, it's just kind of a thing where I think the company really has to know what it stands for. He's clearly done a good job of that. Now everyone is a, a one for one model, which I, I find interesting, you know, but he, he, he did something and made a, a difference. And I, I just think it's amazing. I have one more question and then we need to get to picks. And that is, can you start off with one archetype and then wind up with another? Well, yeah, I mean, we're definitely uh, proof of that. But I think that in Motto's case, it was kind of a fluke because I think we were mistaking that we were actually a rebel archetype. I don't think we actually knew that. I think we were just rebellious individuals that kind of, I don't think that was really our what our archetype was at all. I think in some cases, companies that we have seen, like Levi's is a great example of a company that has switched archetypes a few times and you knew it, you know? Another great example is like <laughs> JCPenney. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a several of companies that I could point to, big brands that we know this is happening in. I do think it's important to find something that is true to you and really never waver from it, especially like the foundational elements of your company, I think are very important to stick with. You know, your vision and your values are very important. You know, Steve Jobs is a great example of think about all like back when, you know, that Apple campaign came out, you know, think different and the logo, you know, being sort of the bite of the apple. I mean, all that is indicative of a rebellious mentality that he embodied and lived through the brand. You know, he always challenged the status quo, you know, and he's used again and again as an example. So I don't want to talk about it too much. But, you know, I do think that Apple has never wavered. They've always sort of been like very clear cut about who they are. And, you know, I think where you see companies that get into trouble, like Chili's is a great example. They're so confused. Companies like that that don't know where they're sort of at and they start to kind of scramble and you see them changing their position a little bit. It's because they're not clear. They feel like they have to do that. They're scrambling a little bit to try to feel like, okay, what's going to resonate? What's going to resonate right now? Where you see sort of Levi's went back to their original archetype. And I think that you can see a sense of, boldness now and, and authenticity that we haven't seen. I mean, it's cool to wear Levi's again. Remember in the nineties, like people would rather be in Lee's and like Wranglers. I mean, what the hell, you know, <laughs> nobody wanted to be in a pair of Levi's back then, you know, they just weren't cool. And like now they've, they've, you know, I think they were confused and I think they're much more clear on who they are now. Of course I wouldn't wear Lee's now, but I remember refusing to go to school with Wranglers on in elementary school. <laughs> I had a pair of Wranglers that were like, I swear, they felt like polyester pieces of cardboard that were just, they were, they could have, like, if I would have stepped out of them, they would have still been standing. Like, they were just so itchy and uncomfortable. And I remember my mom tried to put me in them and I took them off and it didn't go well, but. In fairness, they probably were better for riding a horse than Levi's were, but I was riding a desk, so. (laughs) I know. I was like, mom, I am not wearing these, but it's so true. It's like, you know, back then they just weren't, you know, they, they definitely went through. Yeah. They go through a a period of uh, indecision. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Jonathan, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. This is going to sound pretty out of left field, but I am like always on the quest for the perfect notebook. 
and I have very specific notebook needs. And I do mean paper notebook, not like laptop or anything. And a friend, Marcus Blankenship, gave me the uh, recommendation to try Circa Notebooks by Levenger. And they it's funny, I, there's about six criteria that make a good notebook for me, and this one has all of them. If, dear listener, you are looking for a notebook that's kind of like a ring-bound notebook that can lay completely flat when it's open, can fold all the way around. You can replace the pages and move them around. You don't just run out of the notebook and have to move on to the next one. And it even looks kind of smart in a meeting with C-suite executives. I highly recommend the nicer. There's a bunch of bunch of quality levels, but you can get a fairly nice Circa notebook from Levenger for about 50 bucks. And uh, I am super, super happy with it. I've been looking for a good notebook for about 10 years, and I finally found one. Also, I have a, a new offering, sort of a self-promotional pick here, but I have a new offering that people might be interested in. Uh, you can now book a phone call with me for coaching instead of joining my entire coaching program. And uh, for listeners of the show, you can use the offer code FS2015 to get 50 bucks off coaching call with me just go to expensiveproblem.com slash call and that's it for me nice eric what are your picks all right so there's this blog post by itty called what is price anchoring and should you do it uh, if you don't know what price anchoring is or how to use it this is a really good introductory level post about it i think she uses products for examples but it works exactly the same with services uh, so if you've ever heard of you know sending a proposal or a contract to a client having like three different options that have, you know, increasing prices on them. Uh, this is basically what's behind it. It's really useful. I use, when I did proposals, I used this kind of idea a lot. Many of them, they actually ended up being the, the higher amounts or the, the mid-range amount just because I gave the client options to basically spend more money with me. So if you don't do price anchoring or you just give out one price for your services, uh, read this and see if you can kind of change some things around. All right. I've just got uh, one little thing that I've been I've been working on Angular Remote Conf, and I'm also part of a mastermind group that uh, I had been talking to about some things that I had I had been dealing with, and some things that money would significantly help with making them go away. And they said, "Well, how much do you need?" And then they looked at Angular Remote Conf, and they said, "You should totally be able to make that with a conference," and called me out on it. So I really just kind of want to pick mastermind groups, and then I, which I, we've talked about on the show before, but I also want to pick making a plan because they told me I had to make a plan. So I made a plan and sent it to them. And uh, the feedback I got on that was, this is a great plan, but it's a lot. Uh, so make sure you get everything into your calendar so you know what you can do, what you can't do, and you don't get overwhelmed. And so I did that, and it has made uh, doing the marketing for the conference uh, much, much easier. And I haven't felt very overwhelmed uh, regarding it at all. And uh, it also seems to be working as far as getting the word out. So the other thing I want to just sort of pick is setting a goal, making a plan, and then executing the plan. That's more or less my pick. Sunny, do you have some picks for us? Sure. Okay, so TV shows. So I've been watching a Showtime uh, series called Masters of Sex. Has anybody seen it? Nope. Oh, it's really good. It's really good. I'm kind of a loyalist, so I've been watching that religiously. For the last three seasons and it is filled with a lot of sex, but it, but it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's actually imagine about, that. Uh, I know, imagine that it's, it's actually a, a story based on Dr. Masters and his assistant who studied the, the origins of, of sex and sexual response and things like that. And so it was kind of a, 
uh, and actually an interesting, I guess they wrote a book or something like that. Uh, but this series is based on their work and their study and their lives. And it's just, it's kind of shot like Mad Men, um, which I'm a, a big fan of, but it's that kind of period piece, which I just love. And it's such a cool series. So if you haven't seen it, you guys should check it out. Um, a couple tools that we're using that I really love are we're using something called ReadyMag. I don't know if anybody has heard of that, readymag.com. We're using that for different types of web publishing. So sometimes when we'll do like a brand framework or even a brand mood board, we'll use ReadyMag. It gives you your own URL um, and it's it's sizable in any browser as long as you have an internet connection. So we've done a couple of presentations on it. It has some very cool templates and we've been using that. So I would recommend checking that out. And then we also, another tool that we've been using for mood boards is a tool called Nice. Um, it's N-I-I-C-E dot co. And you can drag and drop uh, images into it. So if you're building out like a mood board, you can get the Google Chrome extension for it. And so if you're on a website that you see some really great images that you want to, you know, pop into something, you can name that board. And it's kind of like Pinterest, but a little bit more interesting. It, it pulls up a lot of different like grid, like based on different categories and keywords and things of that nature. So definitely worth checking that out. And also if you like fedoras, which I do, everybody that knows me knows that I wear hats pretty much on a day-to-day basis. I'm very particular about them. There's a great company called yellow108.com that has some awesome fedoras. So if you're a hat wearer like me, uh, yellow108 is the place to go. You're going to make me cry. My wife and I just got on a budget and I love hats. <laughs> oh man. I, I, I have like a whole thing of hat. <laughs> it's probably a very abnormal amount of hats, but very particular about it. Cause I have like a tiny head. So like most hats don't fit me. Like I'll go in and I'll see this amazing hat and then I go and it just jumps like over my whole head and it leaves me very discouraged and disappointed and kind of, you know, blaming the gods for my tiny head. I'm like, why do I have this small head? But the uh, the fedoras, they apparently made them just for me. So, and they have bigger sizes, but they're they're good. Their smalls are like perfect for me. Yeah, I'm glad they make them in bigger sizes because I have a big head <laughs> in, in every way you can interpret that. <laughs> oh, uh, that was we were just opening the door for that one, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, thanks for coming, Sunny. It was. A very, very interesting and engaging conversation. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. 